The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 1. Welcome to week 3 of Stashtober. What do you think? Yeah, I had to get that out of the way early, so... Uh, for those of you who think this month is bad, next month is Nose Hair November, all right? Ed already has a head start on us. I don't know if you, oh wait, no, sorry, sorry, that was low, that was low. Didn't you say you got a new trimmer, it was like a Husqvarna one, or what was that? Because I love you the most, of everyone, I love you the most. It is good to be back. Uh, we were gone last week, uh, kind of an unexpected absence. I wasn't planning to preach, and so uh, Wes preached for me last week. If you were here, you got to enjoy that, and I thank him uh, for giving me that opportunity. Originally, we were planning on being here, but uh, Jamie's family was in town, and we decided last second to go over to Colonial Baptist Church and worship with them last Sunday morning, and it was so weird sitting in another church on a Sunday morning and doing nothing. I just sat there and listened and enjoyed, and it was good to be with them. We have a lot of brothers and sisters over there, so I brought our greetings to them, and they would send you theirs as well, and we are thankful for our brothers and sisters here all over Hampton Roads who are worshiping God this morning with us. We are moving into a new section of Mark chapter 1, the last part of Mark chapter 1 today, so we're going to read verses 35 to 45 together, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 35. Mark writes this, and writing very, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every corner. Let's pray. Lord, we we need you this morning. We don't need things from you as much as we need you. We need to cherish you and treasure you. Like this quote that we just saw a moment ago said, how shameful it is that so many of us would gladly choose heaven whether or not you were there. Lord, today as we come into your word, as we interact with it, as we present ourselves and and open up our hearts for your spirit to work, the, the thing we need most of all is not just to be changed in terms of maybe sins we commit or to be to be blessed with things that are going on in our lives. We don't need wisdom. We don't need provision. We don't need any of those things as much as we need you. 
And so we come today and we ask that you reveal yourself to us, that you show us yourself, help us to know you and love you the way that you rightly deserve, because that would be the true joy of our heart. This is life eternal, Jesus said. And so, Lord, help us to see that. Help this message to show that. And in the end, Lord, we recognize that this is your desire. And so we ask this in your son's name, knowing that you want to grant this request to help us to see you. And so we ask it in his name this morning. Amen. Today is a special day in our family. That is because today is Nathaniel's 11th birthday. We're not going to sing to him, as I, uh, I was assured, I had to assure him that we would not, but, but it is a special day for us. It was 11 years ago, actually on a Sunday night, it was 1019 on 1020, that uh, Jamie and I, uh, our lives changed forever, and it's really hard for us to believe that it's already been 11 years since that fateful Sunday night. It just has gone so quickly, and you hear people say that in life, right, that the time just went like nothing, and those of you with older children, you know even better than I do at this point what that means, but but we're learning it too along the way, and as hard as it is to believe that it's been 11 years since he was born, here's what's even harder, and parents don't cry when I say this, it's hard to believe that in seven years he'll be gone. You know, that, that's the tough one where you're, when they're first born and, and you're holding them for the first time, college seems like forever away, right? And it's just like, that's too far gone. And several of us in here now are, are sitting here with children and we're looking at them going, we've only got a few more years before they take off. And as you begin to think about the future, and as we were kind of even doing some this week, thinking about his birthdays, you begin to think about the future, it, it causes you to rethink what you're doing now and to sometimes go back and even wish you had done things differently in the past. And so it, it's in that light that I had a similar experience this week in my study here in Mark. I was beginning to look ahead into chapter 2 for what our next section of Mark is going to look like. And the next section of Mark begins in, in chapter 2, verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. And I'll give you a little teaser. I think it's going to be a really interesting, exciting uh, section for us. But, but in those verses, Mark gives us these five scenes of controversy. Just boom, 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 boom. They're lined up in a row. Five scenes of controversy where Jesus is interacting with and responding to different expectations or biases that are, are being brought to him by different people in the scene. So, for example, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11... Jesus is in a home, and he's healing people, and these guys want to bring their paralytic friend to him so that he can heal him. But they can't get in. You know the story. What do they do? They go up to the roof. They open up a hole. They drop him in. And when Jesus sees him, he says to him, rise up and walk, correct? No. What does Jesus say to that man in that moment? Do you remember? Yeah, very good. Your sins are forgiven. That's what he says to him. And there's some scribes in the room, and this is the controversy, some scribes in the room, and they hear this, and instantly in their heart, Mark tells us, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says to them, what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? But so that you can know that the Son of Man has power, here's what I'll say, rise up and walk. And the guy instantly gets up and he proves his point at that moment that if I can tell him to rise up and walk, this paralyzed man, I have the power to forgive sins as well. And so in that scene there, you see this theological bias that the scribes have brought to 
into the room with them. They don't understand God's forgiveness correctly. And so Jesus is going to respond to that, correct them, rebuke them in that moment. So we're going to see five of these kinds of scenes all in a row. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited about looking at these controversies with you. But you might be thinking, what does that have to do with Mark 1? Well, as I was working through those five scenes, just trying to get an understanding of them this week, or last week, whatever week it was, as I was doing that, I realized how nicely packaged all of those things were. I mean, from 2-1 to 3-6, it's all fitting together perfectly. And I thought, is there any kind of uniting theme or, or something that ties all the stuff in chapter 1 together? Because I haven't seen it. As I've been working through chapter 1, it's felt very much like there are these kind of disjointed scenes along the way. And so it forced me to stop and go back through everything we had looked at up to this point to see if I had missed something. Was there something putting it all together that I haven't seen? And so if you'll recall in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, we work through Mark's prologue. And in that section, Mark is introducing us, his readers, to who Jesus really is, that he is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-bringing, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. In other words, he is the one who will fulfill God's promise to come visit his people. He is the one who will bring the Spirit to God's people, which itself is a promise. And he is the one who will finally and forever defeat sin and death. He is the Son of God. And the people in Mark's story aren't going to know that for some time, right? Because they're, they're living it. They're, they're walking the roads with Jesus, and they don't really understand who he is. But Mark wants to make sure we get his identity right off the bat, and so the prologue introduces that to us. Next, we looked at uh, verses 14 and 15, where we saw Jesus speak for the first time. And what's the very first thing he says when he opens his mouth here in Mark's gospel? He says, the time is fulfilled, kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And what I told you when we looked at that section was, you are going to hear this message repeated over and over and over again throughout Mark's gospel in different ways, in different settings, from now until Jesus dies. It's always going to be about him fulfilling what God has sent him to do, him ushering in the kingdom and calling people to repentance and faith. And so, I said to you then that Mark is giving us a glimpse into that, and that's in fact what he was doing. In chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, we see Jesus calling his first followers. He's walking along the seashore, and he sees two sets of brothers in the boats or on the shore, and he says to them, hey, follow me, and I'm going to stop you from being fishers of fish. I'm going to cause you to become fishers of men. And instantly they follow him, and we address what was going on there, the, the relationship and the dynamics. You, you know Jesus is going to call more guys. This is your first clue that he's going to pursue this kind of a plan here on earth. In this section we've been in most recently, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34, we've been looking at Jesus' first day. And, and what, um, I always hate doing this, but I'm going to do it. What is the emphasis of those verses 21 to 34? We see Jesus's. Authority, thank you, whoever said it, I love you. Jesus' authority. You see Jesus' authority and power on display in those verses. And so in the first section there, verses 21 to 28, you see his authority in word as he's teaching and he just amazes the people who are listening with his authoritative teaching. You also see it when he speaks to the guy with the demon and just commands the demon to come out and the demon obeys. And so they are amazed at Jesus' authority. They've never seen anything like it. And then in the next part of that day, verses 29 to 34, 
You see his authority indeed on display. As he walks into the house and he sees Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever and he lifts her up just with his hand and instantly she's healed. And later that night he heals all these other people out in the street, cast out more demons. Mark is emphasizing his authority, his power. And again, it's the first time we've seen this. We're going to keep seeing it throughout the gospel of Mark as we work through it. And now here we are in verses 35 to 45. And we see Jesus is praying, and he wants to move on to other towns, and he's going to heal a leper. And Do you see why I was asking the question now? What's, what's tying all of this together? And to be honest, it's a question I should have asked at the beginning, and I did, but I, I, I didn't see it. I, I couldn't find it at the time. And I'll chalk that up if I can give an excuse to still getting to know Mark, but I can't give an excuse. I should have figured it out sooner. But, but as I sat down this week and I wrote each section out, and what each section is, is explaining or emphasizing, the answer to the question seemed all of a sudden very, very clear. In each of these scenes, from, from the prologue all the way to the one we're going to look at today, in each of these scenes, Mark is introducing something specific and important about Jesus, something that we will see developed more throughout the rest of the story. And so in the prologue, he introduces us to the true identity of Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. In verses 14 and 15, he's introducing us to the message of Jesus. What we're going to hear throughout the rest of the book in 16 to 20, he's introducing us to the plan of Jesus, that as he fulfills God's timing, as he spreads this message, he's not going to do it alone. He's going to gather others to himself, equip them, send them out. In 21 to 34, he introduces us to the power and authority of Jesus. Will anything stop his plan? Will anything be able to thwart him? Nope. Whatever you bring to him, he's going to be authoritative over that. Nothing's going to stand in his way. And if we were to stop right there and pause and think about just those elements, you get a really, really good introduction to why the church is what it is. We as a church, as the body of Christ, find our identity in Christ We, as a church, proclaim one message. What message is that? That the time is fulfilled. That the kingdom is at hand and that everyone who hears this message needs to repent and believe the gospel. We, as a church, are an expression, an extension of Jesus' plan. We are a gathered group of disciples who are then being equipped to be sent out and spread this message further. And as we go, do we go in our own power and ingenuity and and brains and and ideas? Nope. We go out in Jesus' power and authority. In fact, again, pause within the pause. This is confusing now. What What did Jesus say before the Great Commission there in Matthew 28? All what is given to me. Authority is given to me. Go therefore. So the reason we go and the power in which we go is not our own going. It's not our own power. It's Jesus' power and authority. You can take each of those points that Mark has made so far in chapter 1, and you can tie it directly back to the nature and purpose of the church. It is all rooted in Jesus. And now this last section, here in verses 35 to 45. Right here before we enter these five scenes of controversy, Mark wants to introduce us to one more thing about Jesus, I think. And that's his heart. His heart in ministry. 
because we get his identity and his message and his plan and his authority. I think all those things are really, really clear. And not to pat ourselves on the back, because we certainly fail in those things. I doubt many of us are struggling at any of those points. We know this is about Jesus. We know what the gospel is. We recognize what we need to be doing. We recognize that the authority is not our own. And all of that is good. But if we don't get his heart in ministry, then I'm not sure that any of that other stuff really matters in the end. And that's what has concerned me this week, has convicted me this week, that, that we do things and think about things correctly, but maybe we don't feel if I can use that term, which is a little nebulous, feel things correctly. Maybe we don't have Jesus' heart in ministry, and we want to do that. Look at, look at verses 35 to 39 one more time, just before we jump into this. Mark says that Jesus rose very early that morning. While it was still dark, he departed. He went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. And he went through all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. I want to challenge us with the first of four different aspects or thoughts about Jesus' heart this morning. It's a statement that should be true of each and every person in the room, and it's this. That like Jesus, we should have a heart that truly loves God. In verse 35, Mark tells us something about Jesus that has always been, in some respects, a little baffling to me. He tells us here in verse 35 that Jesus prayed. Now, this is the first time in Mark's story that we have seen Jesus praying, but it's not going to be the last. In Mark chapter 6, verses 45 and 46, you're going to see him pray again after he feeds the 5,000. He's going to send the disciples away in a boat while he goes up in the mountain alone just to pray. You're going to see him do it again in a very familiar passage here in Mark 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion, right? He's going to go and he wants to spend time in prayer with God, but these aren't the only places we see it. In Matthew 19, you see that he prayed for children. It was a regular aspect of what he would do, apparently. Luke chapter 3, Luke tells us that he prayed at the baptism. Mark didn't include that, but Luke does. In Luke chapter 5, we see this is a habit of his. He likes to go out to places where he can be alone and there he can pray. In Luke 6, he prays before choosing the disciples. In Luke 9, he prayed just before the transfiguration. In Luke 11, he's praying in front of the disciples and they see him doing this and apparently they've seen it a lot and they're finally like, hey, Jesus, wait, wait, can you teach us to pray? Because we don't really understand what to do here and so We get the Lord's Prayer after they ask this question. And then in John 17, we have one fully recorded prayer of Jesus, something we call the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. You can read it, and it's tremendous, and I'll reference it later on. There are more passages beside these. I just wanted to give these to you as evidence that what we see here in Mark chapter 1, verse 35 is not an anomaly. It's not just a a one-time thing where he happened to pray in this particular instance just because of something and going on in his life. This is a regular pattern of who Jesus is. He prays a lot. Now, here is why I've always been baffled about this. When I think of prayer, which for the moment I'm going to define as bringing our praises to God, confessing our sins to God, giving thanksgiving to God, and asking requests of God, okay? Which, so when I think of prayer, I think of those things, and then I, I think about who Jesus is. He is the second person of the Trinity, 
He is God's son. He is God himself. Something about those ideas don't really seem to mesh well in my mind. You take each component of prayer that I I named and think about it in relation to who Jesus is. Does God the Son need to praise God the Father in prayer? Well, yes and no. He doesn't need to just do it in prayer. He does it in all of his life. In fact, in John 17, he's going to say to the Father in prayer, I have glorified you on this earth. And he's not just referring to being on his knees. Every aspect of what Jesus did brought glory to the Father, and so it's not needed in prayer, though he certainly can do it there. I ask the question, does God the Son need to confess anything to God the Father? Well, the answer to that one's easy. It's no. He's sinless. There's no confession ever in his prayer, so that's out of the question. Does God the Son need to thank God the Father for anything? Well, again, I could say yes and no. Certainly he does. We see examples of that where he thanks the Father for doing this or that. But I would again say that all of his life is lived as an act of thanksgiving to God. And so it's not really needed in prayer. And does he need to request anything from the Father? Well, this one I would say no, It just categorically. He doesn't need to request anything from the Father, though he sometimes does. Because remember that Jesus, as God, is omnipotent. And what does that mean? It means that he can do anything. So there's never going to be a situation where Jesus comes into and he's like, oh, I can't do this. Father, can you do this for me? Because he can always do anything. He's omniscient. That means that he knows everything. So there's never going to be a situation where he gets into it and he's like, I just don't know what to do here. I need wisdom from God. Father, please tell me what to do. That's never going to happen. So there's no sense then in which he needs to request anything from his father. And yet you do see him doing that from time to time. What's that all about? Do you see why I'm baffled by his prayers? I get why you and I need to pray because we're not God. We don't have any of that stuff going for us. We're, we're creatures, we're sinful, we're weak, we're foolish. We, we need wisdom, we need strength, we need to ask forgiveness, we need to praise, we, we need to thank him for stuff. Jesus is completely different from us in every one of those respects. He knows everything, he can do anything, he's sinless, he is the son of God. So why does Jesus need to pray? Well, to answer that question... You need to make sure that you rightly understand two important words in this question, okay? If you don't understand these words correctly, you're going to continue to be baffled, and I don't want that to happen. First, let's talk about this word, pray. A few moments ago, I very assumingly and on purpose defined prayer in this way as, as giving praise to God, as confessing sins to God, as giving thanks to God, and as asking requests from God. I'm drawing that from that old acronym, ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Many of us probably, if we've grown up in churches, have been taught to pray in that manner. And certainly, all of those things are right components of prayers, particularly for us. But, but here's the question. Even though they are components of our prayer, do they define prayer? If you don't understand the difference of that question or the nuances, let me ask it to you this way. If I ask you to define your car, 
Would you say, well, my car is, it's a chassis and it's an engine and it's wheels and it's seats and it's a... Would you define your car by its components? Probably not. You probably define your car by saying it's a mechanical means of transportation. It's made up of all these things or maybe other things depending on what you have, but, but, but the components don't define the car. Well, in a similar way, do those components of prayer that I named out earlier that I, I was thinking through with Jesus, do they define what prayer is? I, I don't think so. You see, prayer is simply and nothing more than communion with God. Pursuing God, knowing God, loving God. It's, it's a means to those ends. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has always lived throughout all eternity in a state of constant communion with the Father. They, they, are, they are one. And so it's no wonder then that on this earth, during this time here, he continues to pursue God in this way. He just wants to be with his Father. That's, that's all it is. Second, let's talk about this word need for a moment. Because I think we need to clarify exactly what Jesus does and does not need in terms of his prayer time, his prayer life, or when he prays. Number one, as I've already said, he's not praying because he he doesn't know what to do. He is the omniscient God incarnate. He knows everything, and he has known it since the foundation of the world. He never learned anything in that sense. Number two, he's not praying because he can't do something and he needs the Father's help to do it because he is the omnipotent God incarnate. He can do anything. And so when Jesus prays, we know that he's not praying because he needs something from the Father. Rather, I would say he's praying simply because he needs his Father. Nothing more. And I want you to think about that statement because this is the essence of what I would say it truly means to love God. Not just that we want his help or not just that we want his gifts, but that we want him personally. That we can't live without him. That we need him. And we need him whether it's a good time of life or a bad time of life. We need him if we know what to do and if we don't know what to do. We need him when when we need wisdom. We need him when we don't need wisdom. That we need him all the time. When, and and this question, when I began to look at this, it, it fell on me like a ton of bricks When was the last time that we prayed simply because we wanted to be with our Father? Not because we wanted something from Him. When was the last time that we, in tears, pleaded that God would help us know Him more? Help us see Him more fully. Fill us with Himself, not just with the things we need or want. When was the last time we prayed for our families? That God would make himself known to our spouse and to our children, that they would be in awe of who God is. When was the last time we prayed for our church that God would be known here and exalted above all? Jesus loved the Father and he wanted to be with him. He he needed him. He needed to spend time with his Father. And it's so important that you see what he does here. He gets up really early, Mark tells us. Zero dark 30, right? He gets up really early. 
And then it's still dark, right? And you think, well, that's good enough. He's going to be alone. Nobody else is going to be up. He takes another step. He goes out to a desolate place where he can be completely by himself. And there he prays. This time is special to Jesus. You see it throughout the gospel accounts. This is a serious thing for him. Jesus loves the Father. He needs his Father. He wants to spend time with his Father. And so he makes this a priority throughout his earthly ministry. This is Jesus' heart. And like Jesus, we too then, we too then should have a heart that truly loves God in the same way. As I said a moment ago, when 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 the weight of this hit me, I was so convicted, I just had to stop my studying and go pray. It it, it forced me to ask the question, do I really want God or do I just want his gifts? Do I really need him or do I just need his blessings? Do I love what he does for me or do I truly love him? And the sad reality is that as I sat there and I thought through this, for me, it felt like the the latter was true way more than the former. I want God's gifts. I want him to meet my needs and, and take care of the things that are going on in my life. But do I really want him? I want his blessings both for myself and for our church. I pray regularly that God would take care of this or provide for that. But do I want him for us? Just him alone? Is he enough? I love what he's done for me. I love forgiveness. I love salvation. I love not fearing hell. But do I love God? And as I ponder those things on my knees, the words of Jesus in that high priestly prayer there in John 17 just kept flooding back that this is eternal life. To know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Our Father wants us to know him. He wants us to love him, to commune with him, to have a relationship with him. It's not enough to know about him. It's not enough to love what he does for us. He wants us to know and love him personally. And prayer, prayer, that personal communion with God where we just come to be with him is an excellent way of pursuing that. Let me, let me apply this for you in three very specific areas or spheres of life. And, and I'm going to tell you up front, that my intention here is to be as pointed as I can. And I have prayed this week. I have prayed that God would convict hearts in this room like mine has been convicted through this. If he does it, great. If not, I, I can't make it happen. Here's three applications. One, you personally, individually need to pursue God in this way. And what I'm asking you to do this morning is to commit yourself every day, this week, next week. I, I'd say forever, but I know we're prone to wander. And, and it's going to be hard and we're going to fall away. But as it comes back to your mind to do this, to commit yourself to this kind of prayer every single day. To, to just come to God and seek Him. Not things from Him. I'm asking you to forego purposefully bringing your request for help here or wisdom there to him. And I get, listen, listen, I get it. Those things are good and right. We have been told to bring them. And so I'm not saying cut those out forever. But I think we're really unbalanced. I know I am. I come and I ask for way more things from him than I ask for him himself. 
And so to take a week or two weeks and just fall on our knees every morning to get up early while it's still dark and to to get on our knees and beg God for himself, to show us himself, to, to fill us with his spirit, to help us to know him and love him like we should, believe me, whatever other requests we have going on, they'll hold. Because there's no need we have that's greater than our need for him. None. And so I get all the stuff going on. I'm not saying it's wrong. And if you ask for something, that's fine. I'm just wanting you to commit yourself this week to pray and ask and seek for God himself personally. To to be like the psalmist here and cry out, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Shame on us. Shame on us for pursuing his gifts and blessings and not pursuing him. Shame on us. I'm convicted by that. Number two, your family needs to pursue God in this way. Dads, husbands, moms, fathers, listen up very carefully. How have we taught our children understand God? Have we taught them to understand him as someone they can look to for requests and needs or someone they can they can look to uh, for information, but never taught them to actually look for God himself? To, to seek him and, and want him above all the things in life? I stand here today as a failure of at least 11 years in that. We, as parents, as husbands and wives, have a responsibility to be praying for our families, be praying for our spouses, for our children, that they would thirst after God. It doesn't matter what they do in life in the end. They can be a truck driver, an accountant, a lawyer. They can be in the military. Those They can do any of those things and and all of those can be fine. But if they don't thirst after the one true living God, then what does it matter? I'm I'm convicted by this. I, I, I think we need to set aside some time this week to fall on our knees together as a family and pray with the psalmist here in Psalm 42 that we need you, God. We thirst for you. We we are hungry for you. Our families need to be thirsting for this God, not just us individually. And parents, particularly, let me speak to you. It is your responsibility to train your children in this way. And if you failed in the past like I failed, you ask forgiveness. You, you lean on God's grace and you move on in a different path, knowing you'll probably fail again, always trusting in his grace. It never ends. Number three. I'll just put the, the saying back up here for this one. It doesn't have to do with the, the point. But our church needs to be seeking after God in this way. And I'm going to focus this kind of on the community groups because I think it's too hard to, to think about it for us as a, a big group of people trying to do this kind of thing together. So I'll, I'll focus on community groups, but I want you to understand there's really no difference in my mind. But you know, God has done some amazing things in Cornerstone over the last 12 years so thankful, so thankful for all I, I look back and see and how he's worked throughout Hampton Roads and lives that have been changed, families have been changed, people have been saved, people are hearing the gospel. That's 
all incredibly exciting. And yet, in all of this, I see a deficiency in us. And that deficiency is this, that we don't come together regularly and and just seek God himself. We, We pray for a building, we'll pray for this or that need and again those things are fine and good they they were told to bring every request to him but when was the last time that we just got together and just sought god together as a church what i am going to ask our community groups to do and jordan's going to be sending out an email tomorrow to this end is to sometime soon not it doesn't have to be this week but just soon to get your community groups together and spend dedicated time just seeking God. To to pray for the things that are going on, that that He would make His name great here. Great in Hampton Roads, great in our community groups, great in our families. I mean, you, you can arrange it however you want. You can do it however you want. We just need to do it. To stop talking about wanting God and fall down on our knees and beg Him for Himself. This is a deficiency in our lives. I'm not saying it never happens. It's never happened, but it sure needs to happen a lot more. A lot, lot more. And so I'm challenging our community group leaders to to take that time soon to draw their their families together. Kids, moms, dads, singles, it doesn't matter. Bring everyone together and just pray. Pray and pray and seek God's face that we would know and love God correctly like Jesus did as the church of Jesus Christ we we have a responsibility to be like him right in every way in every way and that's true of of our identity it's true of our message and our our plan and the authority we operate in it is it's also true of his heart and and if we are not doing these things that we do here at Cornerstone in the right heart with Jesus's heart then I fear it is all for nothing Jesus loved the Father. He communed with him in prayer simply because he wanted him. And I want to ask you to commit to doing the same thing. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me for a moment? Father, I come for myself, for my family, and for this church. And I confess my failures to want you above everything else. It's so easy to want your gifts and your blessings and to love what you've done for us. And yet in all of those things, lose sight of you. And to not seek you, to seek my, my own self, my own ways, my own desires. I am reminded again of how sinful this wicked heart of mine really, truly is. And so, Lord, we come to you. I come to you today on my own behalf, on behalf of my family, and on behalf of everyone in this room, everyone who is a part of Cornerstone. And I ask you to show us yourself, to fill us with a knowledge of you, to to fill us with your spirit, to to help us to love you like you rightly deserve. I, I don't think we can do that on our own. This, this probably comes only by being on our knees and begging just for you. It's so hard for us, Lord, to lay aside all of these needs and, and wants and situations. And again, we recognize that you've asked us to bring them to you. And so 
we're not trying to disobey that. We just, we recognize the imbalance and, and it has saddened us. And, and so I come today and I ask that you will do a work here at Cornerstone in each heart that is listening this morning, each family represented in this room, for each community group here in this room this morning, that we will begin to seek you like we never have before. And we know that when we seek you, you make yourself known. This is your will. We want you to to take us as weak and foolish as we are and exalt your name throughout Hampton Roads, throughout this world, in each community we live in, in each home, each neighborhood, on each street. We want ourselves to know you. We want our neighbors to know you, our coworkers to know you. That's life eternal. Help us to not lose sight of that in the midst of all the other stuff. And so, God, I give you this time. I ask your blessing on it. I ask your spirit to take your word and do what I can never do and to convict and change hearts through it. Jesus, we want to love you more. Please help us do that. It's in your name.